begin the second and third weeks of October, respectively, living wisely in an uncertain world on Thursdays, and full awareness with breathing, Anapanasati, on Mondays. On Saturday, October 1st, Larry is leading a one-day retreat from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Narayan will lead a workshop, Working with the Judging Mind, on Sunday, October 2nd. Also on October 2nd, Maddie is leading two meditation workshops for young people and teens from 10.15 a.m. to 12.15 p.m. for ages 10 to 13 years, and from 1.30 uh, to 3.30 p.m. ages 14 to 19 years old. The first Friday practice group for people of color is meeting October 7th from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. The group meets in the upper hall for a half hour sitting, followed by a sharing circle led by timekeepers. Lastly, we wish you to invite we wish to invite you to join CIMC teachers and community members for CIMC's 11th annual Sit-a-thon on Saturday, October 22nd. The day will include sitting and walking meditation, chanting, bell reading, poetry, a tea ceremony, and socializing. Food will be provided. Please see our website and information downstairs for how you might participate. This is Rick Gibbert's a lot of fun. Um, our fall and winter programs and Wednesday evening Dharma Talk schedule are available for viewing and registration through our website, www.cambridgeinsight.org, and or please see a flyer in our downstairs entry room for more information. Tea and free materials are available in the dine downstairs dining room for tonight's talk. Please help yourself all alone. Next Wednesday evening, Michael will lead a discussion on practice. Tonight, Larry is offering the Dharma talk. His talk is entitled, Dogen's Instructions for the Cook, Some Useful Suggestions for Vipassana Yogis. Thank you. Welcome everyone. Can you hear me in the back? It doesn't sound as it's on. It doesn't sound it here. Yeah. It's all right. It's okay. Well, you're our. <laughs> if, if I pass your test, then I know I'm okay. It's not being picked up. It's what? It's not being picked up. Button is lit up, yeah. Can you hear me in the back? Is it really clear or is it even a wee bit of straining? That's 
You mean it won't be recorded? Correct. Less pollution in the, in the world. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> the, Dogen's instructions to the cook has been a very important teaching for me personally. And um, I hope it's of some relevance to you. Uh, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center is actually founded when we started it. A lot of it has to do with a lot that I already had learned uh, based on some of the things that are in this sutra. It's a Zen teaching, but it goes all the way back to the Buddha and the essence of it precedes the Buddha to ancient India and Vedic times, but things go in and out. Um, I'll, I think you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, the other day uh, I saw some um, progressive people who are uh, members of Islam talking about uh, the state of what's going on in the world today. They were clearly among the liberal progressive uh, people in that. They were educated, they were uh, had an intellectual bent and so forth. But what they were, the main point that I think is of relevance for us here tonight is they said that right now there are at least two Islams. One that is orthodox, what, what people call orthodox, and the other is what they were trying to suggest, which they were calling progressive. Orthodox has the view, which may be mistaken, that the teaching is fixed in time. It's sort of like frozen. It was given, this is it, take it or leave it. And it just has nothing to do with culture and what happens in society and so forth. First of all, it's not accurate. Uh, is there such a distinction within Buddha Dharma? Yes. Within the religions that I know, I don't know the other religions very well. Certainly I know Judaism a bit. It's true there too. The reason it can't be true is because it's alive. That is, people are interpreting it. And so then when people say, we're telling you how it really always has been and how it is today, that's their take on it. And they are people who are alive today with some motivation, with some considerations having to do with their social situation, psychological situation, and so forth. So clearly it's true, the, the teachings that we have, the record we have from the Buddha have moved throughout Asia and now are here in the West and in the modern world it's, and have gone through a transformation. And so uh, I'd like to just trace in the short amount of time, brief amount of time that we have this evening, I won't be able to do this sutra justice, but I hope I can hit the high points and help you uh, go home and understand not simply why CIMC was started, but in a sense even more important is its relevance for you in your life, whether you Anyone here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay. Hi. Uh, those who, who raised your hands, are you new to uh, Bo uh, all Buddhist teachings? Any raise? Are you? So so, but you've read a little, heard a little. Yeah, that's good enough. What? Oh, <laughs> you've been. Uh, she's been bending your ear for all these years, right? Okay, I feel for you. Yeah. yeah, because I've been bending her ear, so. See, it's not static. 
Yeah. Um, the kernel of what, what I'd like to emphasize this evening comes from a statement the Buddha makes again and again. It's so simple. It's so uh, plain that it's very easy to underestimate the profundity of it in terms of its implications. Uh, what it is saying is, be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Okay, great. Now let's get into more deep spiritual stuff. Well, if you hear that, what the Buddha is saying is, be mindful, in other words, live a life that is awake. Because a Buddha is, well, it means it's not the name of a person, it's somebody who's awake, fully awake. And so the practice is, we're learning how to wake up, the assumption being that we're not, that we're somewhat uh, asleep. Okay. So uh, a simple statement like, be mindful in all postures, and of course we move from one to the other, uh, is saying that meditation is meant to be a way of living. It isn't simply reserved for our cushion over there, or a chair, or a bench, or however you sit. Um, and it's very easy to overlook. Now, what has tended to happen, and I hope I can uh, clarify this as we move, as the teachings move on, uh, when it went from India to China, a certain transformation happened. Uh, the Chinese are very, very earthy people. I'm overgeneralizing. There'll be stereotypes tonight. tonight. If it's politically incorrect, give me a break. <laughs> okay. Um, whereas a lot of the, 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 what flourished under the Buddha was largely uh, monastic and a very strong distinction between clergy, that is the monks, who lived a celibate life, and the lay people, and a culture which, um, in that culture, uh, it was an honor to take care of any sincere meditators who wandered. Sadhus uh, was one name for it. And so that was considered a good thing to do. And I'm not saying it isn't. But so what that meant was uh, the way the practice occurred in India, the sincere meditators, there are obviously exceptions. There were many lay people who attained enlightenment too. But it's mainly, if you read the literature, it's the Buddha and certain monks. Um, In those, in those teachings, um, the, the, the yogis did not have to do a lot of things that certainly we have to do. So that food was taken care of, medical attention was taken care of, uh, whatever the person's needs were taken care of by others, and that was considered a way of contributing. Uh, it was it all hung together, it was a system. Now, when it goes to China, in certain circles in China, the Chinese are much more earthly. And they see these healthy, able-bodied guys, you know, when it, when it made its way to China. And if, at first, it was pretty much an attempt to make it very similar, as identical as possible, as what was going on in India. Um, the Chinese were just following the same model. Well, in China, this was, they felt, this didn't ring true. They felt, here are these able-bodied, healthy guys, and we have to what? They saw them as beggars, not as uh, renunciants who were uh, doing holy work, and what an honor to take care of, uh, of uh, all their needs. And so over time, there was some resentment of this, and I just felt like they don't grow anything, they don't take care of themselves, 
we have enough problems, you know. So what happened was um, a very uh, important Chinese, uh, Zen, well, this was at the very beginnings of what we call Zen. Uh, Zen is, is really, it's, it's Buddhism that has been influenced a lot by Chinese culture, especially Taoism. So um, a man named Pei Chang said he changed everything. He saw what was going on. He saw that this was not being well received uh, in China. And he said, a day of no eating is a day of no work. A day of no work is a day of no eating. In other words, he put the monks to work. He had them farming, cooking, doing all these other things that were not done by monks in India. That's a tremendous change. Okay. Now, when it comes to uh, the Dogen's teachings of the cook, Dogen arrives from Japan, and he has a view that holy work is done in monasteries and it's mainly sitting and officially prescribed spiritual activities, for, formal practice. Here, we, let's say, sitting and walking, which are precious and retreat places. But so Dogen arrives, he goes from Japan because he was very dissatisfied with the quality of Buddha Dharma in Japan. And the height of Dharma at that time was, was, in, was going on in China. What we, they call it Chan, we call it Zen. So he's, the, the boat arrives, and I, I will really make it a, a brief statement of it. And a, a Chinese monk gets on, comes on the ship to buy some Japanese mushrooms. Turns out that he's the head cook of a large monastery in China. And Dogen recognizes, I'm putting it in my own words, uh, Dogen recognizes that this guy has something on the ball, and Dogen is there to learn. He wants to find out uh, what is the authentic Dharma practice, because I don't think much of it is going on in Japan. So he wants to talk to this guy about what he thinks practice is, and this cook who's elderly says, look, I haven't got time for this. Uh, I've got to buy these uh, mushrooms, and then I've got to uh, bring them back to the monastery, because I'm the head cook, I'm in charge of a large monastery. Uh, I want to make sure the monks are well fed and there's a, an important ceremony coming up, day coming up. I want it to be special and have something delicious for them and these mushrooms will add to it and goes on. And Dogen doesn't get it. He's saying, it, essentially what he's saying is, well, what do you need that for? That's, that's just, you're cooking a meal. Okay, big deal. I want to talk Dharma with you. And the old, the old cook, says, young man, like, you don't get it, do you? You know, you're like, you got a lot of, you got some growing up to do. See you around. And he just leaves. And finally, Dogen at some point meets him again. I mean, he goes to the monastery. He senses there's something going on. And uh, what the cook describes is that, look, Dharma is not restricted to a particular form. That is, being a cook is not less important than sitting on a cushion. It's also not more important. It's a human activity that is vital. And uh, he talks about uh, the care of making sure that the, the monks were well fed and cared for, healthy. Now this couldn't go on in India. The, 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 the yogis didn't have a choice. That is, and it's a different quality that's observed. I, when I practice in Thailand, you know, it was good training because I'm very um, health-oriented. You could say I'm uh, I'm a, on, was on the cutting edge of health fadism. You know, 
if you don't like what's going on, you know, with all the uh, stuff, the Whole Foods and all that, I was part of that. I've been interested in this for a long time. And so to go to Thailand, where, and I did everything the monks did, I was not a monk, but I was allowed to, in fact, I could only go through the training if I agreed to live like a monk, so I did. And you go on alms round, and you just, you eat what you're given. And I'm vegetarian. And there was chicken and fish, and I later found out insects. I didn't know that at the time. Turns out they're quite nourishing, but anyway, at any rate. Um, so you go on rounds, you don't have, you, 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 you're not gonna be, you don't have a choice as, unless you get sick, then they make exceptions. So it's a different kind of training. The, what can come out of that also has value. The value is you learned to just start dropping your preferences that are so strongly held, compulsively held, and you just take what you're given and get comfortable with that. Well, that means you can't take as good care of your health as you'd like to. And I was there with a few other Americans, and one insisted on being, uh, on being vegetarian. I said, look, we're not, we were going to be there for a while. You're not going to get through this. Uh, you know, this, it's a hot climate. Uh, the villagers are very poor. This is the, the, what they offered was with incredible generosity. And there weren't that many uh, vegetables and things of that sort. Uh, and one of, the, one of the people who insisted on it got very sick and had to leave earlier. Um, so I uh, grin, grimmed, not grinned, and I ate stuff that I normally wouldn't eat. But I learned from that there is some value in that. But of course, uh, my preference is, and we as lay people, we have the freedom uh, to decide what to eat. It's, in other words, we have a lot of freedom to take our life into our own hands and guide our own life in many ways. And that, of course, is a central theme in the Buddhist teaching. Be a lamp unto yourself. That means pay attention. And learning how to live includes everything. There's nothing left out. So this was all news to Dogen. And he's learning about all that. And the, the, the teacher goes on, he says, um, you should view even um, the most wilted greens, you know, just say leftovers, and will, as if they're really precious. You should take care of your utensils as if they're like your eyes. Uh, if uh, Manjushri, who's this guy over here, with the sword. In other words, a very high, uh, he's the uh, embodiment of wisdom. It's, you know, mythology. Uh, he said, if he should come into your kitchen and get in the way, it, so in one of the teachings, he said, I take my broom and drive him right out. The Buddha came in, get out of here, can't you see I'm cooking? What he was trying to get across is uh, that you, what he was, is you do what, whatever it is you're doing, you wholeheartedly do it. And you do it with appreciation, gratitude, and love. And so cooking, uh, then he said, uh, look, it's very easy uh, when you have, a, when the emperor is coming or a retinue of all kinds of important people and uh, lots of beautiful ingredients are donated to the monastery and then you p uh, pay a lot of attention to how you cook, you have, have special ingredients and a special audience and then the next day they're gone. You got the same old grumpy bedraggled monks who, who come in and you got these old vegetables and you know wilted this and all that but can you give the same quality of care to that that you did for for the emperor so he's trying to because otherwise it isn't a, it isn't uh what's her name you know they have a lot of these chefs now who are cooking and on tv right what but what's her name famous lady you know who 
Julia, Julia, Julia. Okay, you know that one. Okay, that lady. Okay. Uh, so is this? Uh, so what he was trying to, what he was conveying is, whatever it is you're doing, do it wholeheartedly. Uh, so he's setting an ideal, really. And what he's trying to say is practice is not, is not restricted to any particular form. It's a way of life. Now, does that mean that sitting and walking and retreats are, are a waste of time? No. But, uh, now, okay, I'll, I'll save that for when the journey comes here. So if you read some of the poetry and some of the literature of the time, uh, you, some of you probably have heard all this. What is Zen? Uh, Zen is uh, chopping wood and uh, drawing water. What is Zen? It's eating rice and drinking tea. In other words, just ordinary things. They're trying to say that the ordinary things of life are, are dharma. It's all dharma practice. And then all kinds of arts sprung up. It actually began in India, uh, and then it moved to China, and then China picked it up. But this is more among lay people. You have flower arrangement, tea ceremony, martial arts, uh, um, archery, it goes on and on. In other words, these are the, the way of tea, the way of flower arrangement, the, uh, the way of the sword, and so forth. So these were attempts to take particular activities and refine them uh, so that the, at the same time that they're a special activity, they're, they're also, I don't like the word, but a spiritual practice. Now, in my experience, much of that is baloney. Uh, because uh, I, I spent time in the martial arts. Most, a lot of the people there who are considered masters, like Zen masters, they're just thugs, that's all. You know, uh, and most of them have had very little Zen training. They couldn't sit still for five minutes, but they could kill you in two, in two minutes. Okay, so, and there were a few authentic ones. Same, same in tea ceremony. I've done a little of that too. The tea interests me, that, but more American style. Uh, if you're from New York, especially Brooklyn, my nervous system cannot do Japanese tea ceremony. <laughs> I would have a nervous breakdown, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a beautiful, when it's done, it's, it's practice and awareness. But mostly what I observe is, for the most part, it's ceremonial, ritualistic, and doesn't have the depth. The few cases where I saw real depth, the people also had meditation training. And a, and a fair amount of it. And they just transferred some of that into their uh, prep, working with tea, with flowers, uh, and so forth. Uh, one, uh, I'll give you an example. It was a, a Japanese um, kudo, I think it's called, of archery. Um, he gave it, I was, this is many, many years ago. Uh, he gave a demonstration. Um, and there were about, I don't know, almost a thousand people watching. And it's a long preparation with chanting and this and that and special, maybe you've seen it, special gloves and uh, it's, an, it's quite an elaborate outfit and getting ready, preparations, and there's the target and we're all sitting there and it's a very large uh, bow and this was a very small man, but strong. And he picked the bow up and held it for quite a while and we were all just sitting there. We were, this was a long time ago and we were very new to all this Dharma stuff. And he held it, and we were sitting there, and then he just shot it up in the air. <laughs> well, what was he trying to teach us? Is he just crazy? He's trying to say that the target is everywhere. Uh, it took us, we didn't get it, but you know, he had, ex <laughs> uh, so he had to go through a long-winded explanation. 
you know, as much as I'm doing tonight. <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, that's the theory of it. Okay, that's the theory of it. Um, so, but if you look at it carefully, uh, a lot of the, the people who initiated it, they're still monks. And they're not in relationship as we think of relationship. They have relationship with each other, obviously. But in monastic life, for example, in the, uh, it goes back to the times of Buddha, uh, many, many rules of regulating social interaction among uh, monks and nuns. So that their social life is quite directed by a whole tradition of how you're supposed to behave with each other and what is an infraction and what you do to correct it and so forth. Okay. So now, uh, what they did is open things up so that the teachings which originally came from India are opened up and now include things you can do. Um, I would say in the religions that I'm familiar with, there has been a, there has been a, lo a, a long-term split. You either get people, in other words, what is, uh, let's say, I'll call it spirituality. I don't like the word spiritual, and I'll tell you why. I don't know what it means. I do, I mean, I know what it means, dictionary, but I know the way it's used is sort of now, uh, it's complimentary, oh, that person's very spiritual. Somehow you have to whisper it, too. Or, he's a very nice guy, but not too spiritual. You know, means, you know, kind of dense, uh, you know, crude, just, uh, just completely materialistic, just give me my food, you know, and where's my sausage, you know. Uh, but let's put it this way, so there have been two extremes. Spirituality is somehow the body and the uh, worldly things are an impediment to spiritual <laughs> development. It's in a lot of religions. Uh, a disrespect, sometimes subtle, but if you, if you really get to see what it is, it's not so subtle, uh, where the important thing is the beyond. And then you get the other extreme, where uh, all that's important is what you can see in just extreme materialism. Uh, but that is, even in ancient times, in Vedic times, in ancient India, the main masters were not priests and they were not monks. That came later. The priesthood, that, that all came later. They were lay people with families. And if you wanted to work with a master, you'd move in with, with this person, help him with every aspect of family life, and in the process of living with him, learn. And you learn how to meditate, you learn this, you learn that. So then, for one, all kinds of reasons, which are not of too much relevance for us now, tonight, uh, that became, so the split is usually all mind or all body. In other words, this worldly stuff, money and, you know, all that, uh, getting married and children, uh, you know, just gets in the way. You can't do anything spiritual with that. So drop it all and go off to the mountains, caves, monasteries, and so forth, forests. Um, and that, then you get the other extreme. Um, but there have been traditions all along, granted not in the majority for a long time, where there's been a more integral or whole view of life. In other words, that life is undivided. It's just, there's just life, to put it bluntly. That's all there is. And the mind makes up, this is holy, uh, this isn't. So let's say uh, when I uh, lived in monasteries, clothing was seized upon. You, should, you have to have very little of it and what little you have, these are monks. And lay people then pick that up. If you have fewer of it, fewer items of clothing, it means you're more spiritual. If you have a lot of clothes, oh boy, you know, not too spiritual. <laughs> uh, 
uh, but but whether a person has any depth or has developed wisdom and compassion, does that have to do with your outfits? How many, how many? Uh, whether you wear high heels or a mascara, or where you have a vest or a three-piece suit, or wear a tie, as many people have to for work, if nothing else. I don't think so. I think it has to do with the relationship to what you do. What the a cook was t talking to Dogen, it's not about worker efficiency. It's not a course in worker efficiency. Uh, not only do you do cooking, give you wholeheartedly to cooking, but wholeheartedly to every job in the monastery. The monasteries I practice in in Korea and Japan, you'd rotate jobs. So sometimes you'd clean out the toilets. Uh, sometimes you'd help with the cooking. Sometimes there were all these different jobs because what they wanted you to do was to work on your resistances your aversions. You know, without all of us, we have certain things that we value. And then, you know, doesn't it start in childhood? Chores, even the word we have for chores. Remember, my mother would say, with my sister and I, you divide up the chores, you know, which meant something you, that no one really wants to do, but please do it, and you divide it up. Your sister will do it one night, wash the dishes, and you do it the other night. And you do it to get over with. You get it over with so you can get on to the real living and things that are important and that have value. So if you brought it up that way, or you can cope. Now, now and then there are some people who enjoy these things, but I don't know anyone, for example, you don't see the Buddha vacuuming. I haven't seen one. You don't see the Buddha making love. You don't see the Buddha on the stock market. Maybe there's a good reason. No, leave that out of it. Um, so the models have been largely in that direction. So now the teachings come to the modern world, and without trying to explain it, look at all of you. You could be more comfortable in a lot of other places tonight. What are you doing here? <laughs> what do you want? Uh, are you here just to feed me? Just take care of my medical needs? Uh, just to make sure I have shelter? Uh, just to stroke me and tell me how what a great that I'm he's very spiritual. <laughs> I, uh, you, you're, you're here because you sincerely want to improve the quality of your life. And I'm, that, is the, the main, that should be the main motive, maybe the entire motive. The whole place is set up to help us all. Okay, so what I saw as it moved here, this I know personally, and this is just my judgment, and that's why CMC was started. Now, those of you who are new to all this, you probably take it for granted. Uh, there was a split here. That is, uh, Dharma was divided into doing retreats. So if you go to IMS or other retreat centers, the, lo the more you sat, the more spiritual you were. So we were all doing lots of three-month retreats, and I did a lot in, in Asia, in different countries in Asia. And the more, and I'm not saying that was bad, I, it was invaluable, uh, you, but that was, your t that was what you did. And then people would talk about the end of their retreat. Now I'm going back to the real world. They just spent three months meditating. And meditating for three months, whether it's in Korea, Japan, here, it's not a picnic. Because uh, it's mo mostly in silence from early morning to late at night. I'm sorry for those of you who are new, you'll probably never come back, but I, you, don't, it's, uh, you don't have to do that. You, you can just vacuum and get enlightened. <laughs> um, so uh, what would happen is we, would f we all fixated on that particular form and at the end of the three months, we, the language, it took me a while to catch on to, the language was, now we're going back to the, the real world, which in the meantime, three months had gone by. Well, what was this? 
Was this uh, uh, Let's Pretend? Was this Disneyland? It was a real part of our life with different kinds of challenges than, let's say, on your job or, it, let's say, in a relationship. But nonetheless, challenges. When you leave there, where do you go? Do you go to it, another planet? It's, in other words, all there is now and forever is life. That's all there is. All these forms have been invented by humans, and some are brilliant and extraordinary, and I'm so grateful that they exist because they've changed my life. I hope they're helpful for you, at least some of it, some, some of what you discover. So this split got deeper and deeper, and people would wear their retreats like combat ribbons, you know, fought at, uh, you know, uh, Viet Vietnam, uh, Guadalcanal, you know, wherever it was down here, how many three-month retreats you'd done. And if you hadn't been to Asia, a little bit, uh, that person is teaching. Uh, they've never been to, not, spirit, not spiritual, you know, uh, not authentic. Well, maybe it's true, but maybe people have gone to Asia a lot. Are, you know, you know, the proof is not in, in, uh, in what, what your passport, the countries your passport says you've been in, but who you are, whether you're learning, whether you're wising up, whether you're dropping stuff that's destructive within you, and then as a result, relating to people in a, in a way that comes from a, the quality of consciousness that you've, you've developed. And whether you're a lay person or a monk, now the, the monastic life is set up to optimize getting free. So I'm not criticizing it, and it seems to be very good for certain people. Uh, and, but as I look, but then what, so they would, in a sense they say, now we're going back to the real world, but it was really a put down. It's sort of that world where, you know, people eat gluten and uh, meat, <laughs> and, and they vote for the wrong, you know, the wrong people, and uh, they voted for the Iraq war, you know. In other words, all these kinds of things, um, that's something you kind of put up with so you can raise money to run back to the next retreat or to get enough money to go to Asia again and, and work with uh, Master Roshi, Rishi, etc. Uh, at a certain point, though, I got to see a lot of the people who were doing this and a, a kind of um, divorce between the three months and then nine other months went by. These were all lay people like us. And I started to see that uh, they were living in order to get back to the next retreat. In the meantime, life was passing them by. And also I started to see that you, it's not how much you sit that determines, you could still be a jerk after 10 three-month retreats. I'm one of them, <laughs> more than 10. Um, so that isn't the measure of it. And I started to realize this whole way of looking at things is what is now called, if you want to get fancy, dualistic. It's opposites thinking. There's spiritual and there's worldly. You know, it's everything, it's opposites. So I started to look around and read around and inquire about different teachers and different approaches. And I found that, it, that this dichotomy has always existed. But have also, since ancient times, there have also been people who understood that there's just life. And can it be valuable to go on longer treats? Of course. Can it be valuable to come to CIMC? I hope so etc. But here we are, and something new has happened. Now, if you read the literature uh, that in China, Japan, and Korea, a lot of it has to do with manual labor, eating, t you know, eating rice and tea, chopping wood and all that. There's nothing about hugging your child. There's nothing about, of, of, uh, about relationship, because they were monks. And they, they liberalized it as much as they could, but it isn't that much help for us. Now, in the teachings, of course, 
having listened to monks who have been celibate their entire life, come here and give advice to couples. Sometimes I had to keep my mouth shut because, and even, because the advice, it, it's sort of formulaic. In other words, follow the precepts. Don't lie, don't steal, no sexual image. Those are all nice ideals. It's like the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we're very good when we go to church, synagogue, mosque, uh, uh, ashram, and so forth. But then look at the world. Obviously, it isn't working. Okay, so what we needed, it seemed, is a teaching that includes all of life. And I don't think CIMC made it up. It's just that what we've done is put it right smack in the middle of, well, between, I don't have to explain. You know, it's right, Central Square is there, Harvard Square is there. And the whole point is, something new is happening here. The same teachings, be mindful while sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. Just bringing it into your life here, but how can, the, the key thing is the attitude. Uh, so the teaching from D Dogen and that cook means give your full awareness to everything you do. Great. But it, it drops off when you get to relationship, which is the big one. That's where we humans have the hardest time. We do not know how to live together. And if you disagree with that, I don't know what planet you've been living on. Uh, in the extreme, it's war, which are, every war is the war to end all wars, the war to end all conferences and peace treaties and all. Uh, it's because those are byproducts, those are symptoms of the mind that has not worked out certain psychic difficulties, toxins, poisons, if you will. In the Buddhist scheme, it's called greed, hatred, and delusion. Not bad. A lot of, if you listen to what's going on, you could see, put it in different categories, you can see this is about greed. This is about hatred. And all of it comes from delusion, thinking that this is the best way to live in the face of evidence that it's not working. It hasn't ever worked. We keep hating war and doing it. There's always a new generation of young folks who uh, get romantic and the bands start playing, give them some uniforms, especially if they're from the working class, and they go off to die for the other people who are sitting watching on TV, us. I've been in the military, I've seen it. So there's something, now I'm not, this, I'm not trying to say this is gonna heal the world, it would be nice if it did, but what I'm saying is this is about us. Now there seems to be and it's been going on for a while, it doesn't look like it's just a fad. A lot of energy within what, what are called lay people. I would just say the, the human race. There's a, a dissatisfaction. Uh, there's a, an, a lack of complete fulfillment that seems palpable. Uh, there's a yearning for something and many people have not uh, found the religion they were born into useful. Some have and then it's easier if you can do it through the religion you're born into. If it's, if it's doing this for you. But there's a, a yearning to flower as a human being, to um, take care of the quality of your life. And uh, I'm not saying they're droves, but it does seem to be growing. And the fact that the planet is in, in such difficult straits and wherever you look about everything, uh, it seems like more and more people are turning up. My friends all over, you know, I know other Dharma teachers. It's not just CIMC, people realize they've got to do some inner work. Okay, now, we can't sit that much. Let's say if you're a contemplative in a monastery, and even there, in my observation, they don't sit as much as we romantically idealize them to. 
but many do in really good good places they do um, we have to change our attitude because what Dogen was being taught is not simply to be an efficient cook and to be an efficient vacuumer vacuumer uh, what is being taught is that if you uh, it's a, a change in attitude so that um, the attitude that the, the practice that you do is the realization. It's not that it leads to enlightenment or to awakening. It's that what you're doing in this moment is awakening because you're practicing being awake. So it's not like you put the goal off future lifetimes uh, or you put the goal off if I really practice hard, do a lot of three-month retreats, someday I'll be free. Look, there are degrees of being awake, obviously. There are probably not too many Buddhas in any generation. But those of you who practice a while, in those moments when you're awake, or let's say there are a few moments when you're really awake, those are different, there's a different quality to consciousness. You can feel it. Now, what if we turned our life just as it is? And this teaching is in the Dharma. There's a teaching that says a bad situation is a good situation. So whatever you, if you think about something in your life that you don't like, uh, your son-in-law, my daughter doesn't behave, or you know, this professor who isn't guiding me is a jerk, you know, whatever it is. The attitude here is not the attitude that we've been brought up with. It's shifting from the intention to judge. So much of what we're doing is judging, judging each other, judging ourselves, to one of understanding. And the actions are meant to derive from, now understanding here goes beyond conceptual understanding, intellect. It starts there. There are teachings. They're designed to help us. But finally, insight, vipassana, insight meditation, the real insight has no thinking in it. It's, it's synonymous with clear seeing. When you see things very, very clearly, let's call it insightful seeing, it's very obvious what has to be done, or it's certainly... Now, every step in that direction is helpful in my experience. Okay, so the attitude shift is most important. Can we uh, start to view our life as precious, as valuable? And there's nothing, this sacred, profane thing uh, is detrimental. If you want, everything is sacred. Or throw those terms out. Uh, life is so precious. Uh, but, you ha but not as a not romantic ideology. If you don't feel it, then you start there. It says, I don't feel that. I feel that life is a drag. You probably feel that, right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm just trying to, it's called a preemptive strike. Because <laughs> when the Q&A when the starts, he's going to go after me. And so I just, yeah. I know. Uh, yeah, I just, so I, yes. I want to make it clear who's boss around here. Okay. Okay. Probably. Um, so so the, the attitudinal shift is one that, that's not so easy to change. Uh, so that simultaneously, whatever it is you're doing, whatever your job is, whatever, you know, so it's not that there's something fantastic in brushing your teeth, which you have to do again and again and again. You brush your teeth, then you have to do it again at night. Then you, brush, then you floss and again. You wash the dishes, they get dirty. You wash the dishes, you get dirty. It keeps going like that. So a lot of things in life are repetitive. Can we bring a fresh mind? You've heard these terms, beginner's mind, don't know mind. Uh, in other words, start viewing life as if for the first time. Now, if you, let's say, you look at nature and you don't find it uh, fantastic and sacred and uh, um, uh, 
miraculous or uh, Einstein felt what was needed, what was lost in science was the sense of wonder that the, uh, the other generations of science, there are scientists who have it still, but a lot of that's been killed by the way science has become. Same in everything, so I don't mean to pick on science. So let's say you feel, I don't feel that life is so mysterious or, stra or great or all that. I feel it is a drag. Fine. The beauty of, one of the beauties to me of this practice is you always start where you are. It's not so then you have to do an impersonation of loving life. Uh, it won't last. It's fake. It's good for Saturday Night Live, but it's not true. Okay, so you start where you are, which is uh, you're weary. You start where you are, whatever that are is. And, uh, and of course, we're developing them on simple things like metta and breath awareness. We're developing the quality of the mind that's steady enough to face all the contingencies that we face in life. Life is constantly is uncertain. It's changing. Uh, it always has been so. And right now, we have our own version of it with unemployment. You know, I don't have to spell it out. Uh, so. Uh, Dharma is saying, the, uh, can we develop a quality of mind that is at peace in the, in the face of all the different weather conditions? Weather conditions, not literally just weather, but it can start there. People, you know, soon people are going to be complaining, it's too cold. I just thought you said it was too hot. <laughs> you know, so, no, then, okay. So, it may, it's good for small talk when I walk down my street. Hot enough for you? Yeah, hot enough for me. You know, I hear it's going to warm up tomorrow. Yeah, good, good, thank you. you know. um, so how to change this attitude? Now, I don't have a magic formula for you, but if you hear the words, I'm hopeful that it releases you from some, to me, forms high-class delusion. That, uh, that life is broken up into these compartments. Now, clearly, there are activities that can't be saved. For example, does that mean if you develop strong samadhi and you're a safe cracker, a robber, uh, that's okay? The Buddha would say, yeah, go ahead. It's good you have developed this very steady mind and that uh, you can just, you'll be just great at your job and you get enlightened as you just rob everyone. You'd be the modern Dillinger, it'd be just great. No, of course not. That's called Mitya samadhi, wrong samadhi. Because wisdom has everything to do with skill and living. Those mind states, those forms of verbal action, and those forms of physical action that produce suffering or in you and in others, they're not wise. They don't work. Now, you have to care about your life. If you don't care that it doesn't work, then these teachings are might as well just talk to the wall. Uh, and there are other mind states and ways of speaking and ways of acting that, that produce harmony and peace that are beneficial, starting with yourself. Because if it isn't in you, it, you can't give it to anyone else. And that the same for others. So wisdom is a skill that can be learned, but it's not something that you learn from memorizing wise sayings. That may be a start. Or even doing metta till, you know, for, for days on end. That can be a start too and helpful. Or follow the breath, you know, just continuously forever, I don't know. Because I teach breath a lot. Uh, it's just, it, it's, those enable the mind to be steady enough so that it can look at what we don't really want to look at. The essence of Vipassana is clear seeing. Insight comes out, is the clear seeing. Now, that sounds beautiful. To me, it's very, it's beautiful. And it has an aesthetic quality. The seeing 
is in a sense seeing the wonder of the nature of life. Starting with yourself, you're looking at the Dharma means law, one meaning of Dharma is lawfulness. Or is the, the natural law, and we're part of that natural law. The mind is lawful. But if you, if you learn, read all the Buddhist psychology texts, and I've spent time doing that, because my mind used to work a lot like that, um, it has some value, but it doesn't come close to looking at your own mind. There's no comparison. You can't really understand what the Buddha's talking about unless you start to get to know your own mind. And do you want to do that? We're so busy using it to earn a living, to get success, to get fame, to do this, to protect ourselves, to attack, you know, that we don't really know what we're doing and yet we're living from that unexamined place. So uh, what I'm trying to say is, can we extend this, if you've been coming to, if you know, have some familiarity with Dharma teachings, it's not that I'm suggesting anything new, it's just don't leave it at, at, at 331 Broadway or wherever, you, wherever your favorite meditation place is or your little med meditation corner at home. In other words, see if you can more and more bring awareness to everything that you do. Now, um, you'll forget to do it, we all do, but little by little, you know, what I think enables this new attitude to be real, become real, this has just been, been teaching for a while now, and of course a lot of it's from my own practice, is when you actually start to experience firsthand, directly and intimately, the fruit of living a life of awareness and learning. We, then it's yours. It's not because the Buddha said, this one said, that one said. Um, once you start to see that you're learning a skill, which is really worth learning, because it has to do with the nature of your life, the quality of your life. Look, now you hear a lot about standard of living, and it's all economics. Now, how can I, I don't mean to put that down. I come from a working class background, very, very poor. I'm happy that I have, we have to worry about food. I grew up in the depression. Okay, I, my father was unemployed for five years. I know what it was like to live with a parent who was worried about how to feed us, who wanted to but couldn't sometimes. So I'm not minimizing that, but we've made that the standard. And standard of living, if you just hear it in a neutral way, it's about living. It includes economics because that leads to better, can lead to better me medical care, nutrition, education. You know, I don't have, uh, and it's also, apparently it isn't a magic uh, pill because there are plenty of people who have enormous wealth and are miserable. That doesn't mean that wealth is bad. It's not that money is, we just don't know how to use it. And then we have all this incredible insanity over sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. It's a natural process. We don't know how to use that energy. We don't, so we, uh, wisdom is learning how to use, you have to start with the, it's in a sense the energy, internal energies are constantly interacting with external energies. How to learn how to live in this world as it is. And one of the things you'll discover if you do that is that there's a depth inside of you that you may never have even in your wildest notions conceived of as being part of human nature. It's there. It's, everyone has it. Everyone in this hall has it. It's not limited to special people. You don't have to shave your head. You can if you want to. Uh, you don't have to go like this or go like that. You can if you want to. You can honor ceremonies, holidays, you, if you don't want to. That's not really the cutting edge. The cutting edge is wisdom, is understanding. It's freeing yourself from ignorance. Ignorance in the Dharma sense is not how many books you've read or whether you're literate or not. 
one of the best teachers I had in Korea was illiterate. It's, in other words, from a Dharma point of view, somebody who's ignorant is, not, is that they don't know themselves. So you could have read all the books in the Widener Library, I almost did, at least on the, uh, and, still, and still your life is a mess. Then again, you could be a very simple person, and I've met a few, who hardly read anything, or even illiterate. And they understand how to live. They've learned, that, so that's a, a different book. It's not to the exclusion of the other. Keep studying, reading, that's beautiful too. It's can we enlarge our sense of what life is now as lay people? And we, I think it's, it, we have to learn how to use our life as it is because we're not living in a monastery, we're not living in a forest, we're not living in a cave. We do have relationships, we do go to work, we do have families, uh, we want to get in relationship, we want to get out of relationship, you know, all the things that are, if we, if we all start to talk about, you know, just our life, that's, those are the perfect materials to practice with. Couldn't be better. Now, Dog, the, Dogen got it about cooking, but let it spread through every, become a way of life so that life and practice are really the same thing. It's not a, a collection of techniques and methods, useful as they are. They are a means to, at a certain point, even shedding them. A really good method uh, uh, self-destructs. At a certain point, you don't need it anymore. And it's just you live a life of awareness, being awake, sensitive, and being interested in learning about what's going on internally and externally what you see and what you hear about what's in here and what you see out there. And the process of learning keeps it fresh. As you start to see, if you do find this out, look, I, this is what I do, so of course I'm saying what I say tonight. If you discover that there is real value in, in this, that you see the quality of your life is changing, naturally you'll want to do it more. Not because it's good for you, because it's fish oil and you need vitamin whatever and you have to it's good for the heart and the eyes and your nervous system and all that because you know it for yourself so what I'm saying is as the trip is moved all the way through and come around here there's so much interest in among the lay community it's in Europe too my friends in Europe tell me the same thing there are still people who, who go off to monasteries who want to be nuns who want to be monks but it's nowhere near the numbers that were in Asia. Moreover, it's a different culture, or for whatever reason, it's the modern world. It's not just Asia. It's the modern world. People are not as inclined to be monastic. The Dalai Lama has acknowledged that. As science, if, you know, for me personally, if science punctures some of the things that Buddha said, and it turns out it's not true at all, I drop it. He said, you can't do that. Well, if I was orthodox, you know, th this is it. I'll leave, you know, in other words, the God, and God created the, the, the world in seven days. Uh, he did. Uh, so what, how do we reconcile that with evolution? You know, some of the politicians and all that. I'll end with a Jewish story, a Jewish joke. If I can tell it in English properly. Uh, someone wants, is, uh, wants to get a very, somebody, this is in Russia, this person wants to get a beautiful suit for a special event that's coming up. And he goes to the best tailor uh, in Minsk. That's a town, a, a lot of Jews lived in Minsk. It's really Ukraine now. Or it always was Ukraine until the Soviet Union took it. 
uh, he goes to this extraordinary tailor, and the tailor measures him and tells him, you know, come back in about a week, a few days, and I'll have it. Guy comes back, it's not ready. He says, come back in a, another few days, comes back, it's not, this keeps going on. Finally, it's a couple of months. Finally, he comes there, and the suit is ready, and it is a wonderful, beautiful suit. He tries it on, he's very happy, but then he can't resist. He says, do you realize it's taken you longer to make this suit than it took God to make the whole world? For those of you who are atheists, in the Bible it says it was made in seven days. Uh, and he says, yes, that's true, but you've seen my suit, now take a look at the world. <laughs> Um, time for questions, but um, it's fine if you can only stay a few minutes. It won't be rude if you have to get up there for a few minutes and leave. Uh, some of you need to leave now. Please do. It's not rude. It's fine. Uh, but I'd like to get started so we have enough time for uh, uh, cover whatever questions there may be. Anyone, please? We don't have to wait until everyone leaves. Give some other people a chance. You're warming up anyway. He's getting, <laughs> he's getting ready for uh, the killer. <laughs> I know. Anything on anyone's mind that we can talk over together? Please. How can you be mindful when you're lying down? Same way. You. Uh, now, if you do it at first, again, I'm, I don't know you well enough, so typically when you lie down, we've had a lot of practice in that particular posture, and it leads to sleep. Okay, so if you, if you at the beginning, that, is, that will tend to happen because we have conditioning that when you're in that posture, you wind up going to sleep. But you can learn how to, how to uh, look, there's a, a practice in, uh, in a yogic practice. Uh, it's called the practice of the corpse. Shavasana, yes, where the, the body goes completely asleep and you're totally awake. So it can be learned, but in principle it's no different than anything else. Now, if you find that when you lie down you're having a hard time doing it, uh, take some help, like put your hand on your tummy and just feel that rising and falling. You can use the breath or if there's some other method, whichever method you're drawn to, uh, and you will fall asleep, you'll drift off. If you don't get discouraged, the time will come where you can learn how to do that. Uh, people have different preferences. Some people do standing meditation. In the monastery, I practice at one of them in Thailand. People, uh, yogis would stand for sometimes a, an hour and a half doing meditation. They weren't just uh, you know numb. They, the stuff was going on. It was very rich. So and then some people hate standing meditation. Some people some people can sit forever. Right. At the, some people hate to sit. So you got to work with your own. Uh, predispositions, but you can learn how to do it, but in principle it's no different. Yeah. I want to give a few, uh, uh, we're discriminatory in favor of adults. You're, yeah. There's too much adulation, it, well there's too much adulation of the youth culture. You know, I see too much of it. Look, being young is not something you earned. Soon you'll be a jerk like the rest of us. <laughs> just an accident of you just haven't been around the planet long enough yes please it seems like for me one of the things that gets in the way of, of being mindful sometimes being really busy yes um, and I think this culture in the city being busy is very easy to do yes so that has sort of falls 
Yes. Yes. No. What, what you've pointed out are the particular obstacles in uh, your situation that make it that get in the way of carrying out. In other words, the words are clear to you. I can see that. Just how do you do them? Um, sometimes you have to be. Uh, there's room for innovation and creativity. Uh, for example, sometimes just a 15-second pause and being with a few breaths. Uh, if you feel you're getting, you know, you're getting swept up and getting lost in your own, or getting too complicated. Uh, one of the best teachings I was given was by Ajahn Chah from Thailand, and he would just say over and over again, and we totally underestimated. He said, no matter, we'd ask questions, no matter what we'd say, say, it looked like he was giving it deep thought, and then he would always say the same thing. Keep it simple and stick to the present moment. Okay, now, so the outer conditions are complex. Maybe you're multitasking and so forth. Uh, now, if thinking is involved, as I gather it must be, right, so computers, then the correct action would be to, to really 100% do thinking. When you're a cook, you have to do what cooking is. But if thinking is involved, now, so then how does this, uh, uh, this what is this awareness, uh, how does it contribute? Well, first of all, let's say you're doing the task and you can feel a lot of anxiety coming up. Okay, that means there's some uh, huge emotional cost. What, and you may get the job done, but then you come home and you're exhausted. Or right then and there, you may realize that you're afraid of failing, or that uh, you know there's a deadline, and you're competing with someone else, and you want to get promoted. You know all these. We've created a system where it's hard to. It's if this was invented by somebody who wanted to undercut everything that's been said tonight, they did a good job. But look, if you read the ancients, they had a hard time too. They really did. Uh, there's one practice that I tried to practice when I first came back from, uh, I actually I learned this uh, in Thailand. Um, let's say the, the, uh, the yogis at the time of the Buddha, you'd be walking along the road, granted it was a, mainly a rural society, very much more simple than what you're getting at. And let's say you walk past a tree and then past a lake and you realize that suddenly at the lake you lost your mindfulness. You know, when did I, get caught up in my thoughts typically, typically the future or the past. So then it was the lake. So you go back to where you lost it. So when I first came back here, I tried to do it. I walked from Cambridge to Harvard Square at the time a lot, you know, almost every day. And so I would do it. You know, I would get to the corner of, uh, of Ellis, you know, and then uh, where did I lose it? You lost it about uh, t two seconds ago. But the point is, it took me like two hours to get into Harvard Square. <laughs> Okay, so, the, um, and I had a very simple task for myself, but you have to use your ingenuity, not get discouraged. Um, one of the, re one value for some people, no method works for everyone, is if you, do, are you drawn to breath awareness at all? Okay, uh, uh, in Anapanasati, most people think of it as just concentration, that you do the breath so that the mind becomes very serene, calm, peaceful, still, and so it's serviceable. It's, it's able to then examine com complexity and so forth. But in the, in the full Anapanasati, you're keeping the breath in mind a, f a lot throughout the day. So let's say with practice, you're already breathing. It's not like you have to be so self-conscious. In, out is already happening. And it's like uh, accompanying you, like a good friend into what's going on. And granted, the challenge is now, first of all, uh, attention deficit disorder, right? That's all I hear now. 
uh, does my granddaughter have attention, my uh, grand, yes, granddaughter have attention deficit disorder? I'm saying, well, when I, when I look at TV and I look around, I think the whole planet has attention deficit disorder. You know, we're, everyone's being given so many different things, and the, the more new gadgets that come out, you know, uh, so what do we give up? So you have to uh, be reasonable. You probably fall on your face a, a few times, but can you improve your ability? Um, one thing that can, uh, whenever you're suffering, I found that to, it, it's in the very first teaching the Buddha gave, the first noble truth. If you're suffering, do you know it? First noble truth, there is, there is unsatisfactoriness in human life. He's not saying everything is suffering, but there, there is. If you're human, you know that, and it's always been true, probably will always be true, probably true of any, anything that's alive, okay? So whenever you're suffering, it's sort of like an alarm goes off for me now. That's the place to look. Now, granted, you have other things to do, but then what you might see is, uh, here's what has helped me. The more I, we talk, the more I realize I know what you're talking about. I haven't always. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.